I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Long Game with Ellie and Leach. Welcome to The Long Game with Ellie and Leach from The Recount, where every week we talk about the biggest stories in sports and how they impact culture, politics, and business. I'm that goofy, happy-go-lucky guy, LG Granderson. He's the very serious and earnest Will Leach. I'm morose. I'm full of demons that swirl inside me and make me dark and twisted. Anyway, in addition to that little fun little anecdote, uh, we have a full slate today of stories to discuss. First, we're going to talk about the upcoming NFL draft, which is this Thursday, April 28th. There's a little less buzz than usual. For this year's event, and we'll take a look at why that might be the case. Spoiler alert, I actually think it's LZ's Los Angeles Rams. The fact that they won that Super Bowl without a first-round pick since 2016 might have something to do with it. You don't think it has anything to do with the fact that we're just a better team? Yeah, you've mentioned this. Did you pick the Cardinals? <laughs> you, you apparently missed the thing about the demon swirling inside me. <laughs> <laughs> then we'll give you our key takeaways so far from the supremely entertaining and unusually surprising first round of the NBA playoffs. Just when we think we have things figured out, Joel Embiid messes up his thumb, Devin Booker messes up his hamstring, Chris Middleton messes up his knee, and Kevin Durant just messed up. Well, I don't know about you, but I revised my finals prediction three times over the weekend watching these games. Yeah, at this point, I think my Knicks still have a chance. <laughs> And later, we'll debate the decision by Wimbledon to ban Russian and Belarusian players from entering this year's tennis tournament because of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. LZ finds this ruling defensible, which I do not. So hold on tight. The sparks between LZ and I, us hated rivals, will fly. You're just still mad that I picked the Rams. Are we still on the Rams? <laughs> We're always on the Rams. God. Then we'll wrap up the show with this week in sports history by going back 81 years to remember the first time live organ music was played at a Major League Baseball game. Joining us to discuss how ancient traditions like this can still have meaning for us today is Josh Cantor, the longtime and extremely popular organist for the Boston Red Sox. Dun, 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 dun. Dun, 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 dun. That's how the organ sounds like in a baseball game. In case you're That's wondering. way better than the NBA's, give me a beat! I'm so sick of that. <laughs> all right, but before we get into all of that dirty business, LZ, what is your sports mood today? My sports mood, my friend, is unbridled joy, excitement. I'm over the moon. Do you want to know why? I'm not sure, but okay. <laughs> One Roger Federer just announced today that he's coming back, baby. 
He's coming back to play tennis. He's coming back for his hometown tournament in Basel. The Basel, I think, open. It's always an open when it comes to sports. Why is that? Why is it never like the Basel close or the U.S. close? It's always the open. Basel, the Basel very narrow passageway. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Now, Will, while I am a little disappointed, he's not going to be around for Wimbledon, which is obviously the tournament he's most known for. The tournament out in Basel, or however the hell you pronounce it, starts in October. So it gives us plans for like October. And you like planning stuff way in advance. So this is like right up your alley. You know, the problem is I already have plans that weekend. Sorry, I, hate you. I just already have already I booked. Just hate you. I'm already like, wait, wait, 23 or 24 or 22. I'm actually booked all three. Sorry. Hopefully I'll get to catch some of them. <laughs> now, I'm not expecting him to come back and automatically win tournaments. He may not even win the first match, but. The simple fact that he's announced a date to return means those of us who love the sport and those of us who want to give him a proper goodbye if this is the end will have an opportunity to see him one last time to do so. I was really afraid because the tennis players are notorious for doing this. They just stop playing. They don't say goodbye. They don't Mm -hmm. announce retirements. They just don't show up anymore. And they just disappear. And I've had so many of my all-time favorites Just go away. And I'm so glad that Roger Federer isn't just going to go away. At least right now, it looks like we'll have at least one more opportunity to see him on the court. Maybe he'll play well. Maybe he'll win. Who knows? But at least we'll get to see him. So if it is the end, we're more cognizant of it as opposed to him just going away. So I'm happy. Yeah, I'm Team Federer with you. Federer for me is kind of what I want my superstar athletes to be in just about every possible way, to be honest. I feel like- One in Europe? Yeah, it doesn't hurt, to be honest. (laughs) In my mind, the elegance that I float through life with and the quiet expertise and the the confidence but not arrogance and the style and the certain je ne sais quoi that in my mind, I am doing all the time while actually tripping over furniture and (laughs) drooling on myself. That's Roger Federer for me. In my mind, I am like Roger Federer, even though in real life, I am like me. Federer, to me, has always kind of represented just a certain set of grace and style and dignity in a way that uh, you don't really see very often in sports. And frankly, I don't know if you know, we don't see that much in tennis uh, anymore, at least when we're looking in Novak country. So I'm excited to see him back as well. What is your sports mood? My sports mood is uh, baseball related. Something weird has happened in LZ and I don't like it. It is upsetting and it's strange. Go on. The Mets have good vibes. And I don't <laughs> like the Mets having good vibes. It's weird. Every once in a while, there's a certain team, right? You can tell early on in the year, things are clicking just kind of right. And everything's falling the right way. And the fans are getting excited. And it becomes like a big party all year. Maybe it'll pay off at the end and maybe it won't. The 2016 Cubs are probably the best, most recent example of this. Where at the beginning of the year, there was just something kind of special about that team. It's bad enough that it was the Cubs ever. Mm-hmm. And again, I remind everyone one more time that Cardinal fans for years and years and years said if the Cubs ever win the World Series, the world will quickly come to an end. The Cubs won the World Series at the end of October, at the beginning of November 2016, and then the world came to the end. We tried to warn you, listen to us. 
The Mets have that vibe right now. I watched them come back from a 2-0 deficit against my Cardinals last night to come back and win 5-2. There were two outs. Nolan Arenado, the best fielding third baseman in a very, very long time, had an easy play that he threw away and gave the Mets the win. He's only good in Colorado. Yeah, he's, he's great. He's great. He's great. Arenado's <laughs> awesome. He, he makes that play all the time. The Mets just kind of have the look right now. The Dodgers are the best team in baseball. But the Mets have that kind of vibe that, the Yankees wish they had, <laughs> which is kind of a weird thing to say because the Mets' whole thing is that they're miserable all the time. I don't like it. I don't like seeing the Mets with a team looking confident and their fans feeling good about themselves. It's against the natural order. It's way too early for I know, but you know, I'm just it's, saying. You know what you it is? It. It's too early to deem perennial winning teams to be off to a bad start. And it's definitely too early for perennially bad teams to be off to a hot start. <laughs> like, it's not just that they're winning, though. They're just having a lot of like really electric moments. Now, don't get me wrong. This is the Mets. I think what's going to happen is they're going to have a really great vibe, and it's going to be this awesome year. They're going to talk about how awesome, awesome 22 was. That was you have been waiting for, and then the Dodgers will sweep them. <laughs> right. and, then, and then no one will remember it. But keep an eye on the Mets. I feel like there is something special going on there. I'm very sad to say. All right. I'll keep my eye on them. Not both, though. Just one. Okay, time to move on to our first big topic, the impending NFL draft and whether it is starting to lose its relevance. With the first pick in the 2016 NFL draft, the Los Angeles Rams select Jared Goff, quarterback, California. That was the mesmerizing and sultry tones of Commissioner <laughs> Roger Goodell in 2016, announcing that the Los Angeles Rams' first-round selection in the NFL draft that year would be the much-maligned quarterback, Jared Goff. To be clear, I resurrect that moment not to torment my friend LZ, but rather to make point. The Rams haven't had a first-round pick since then and aren't slated to make another until 2024. In fact, they traded both Goff last year and two first-round picks for veteran quarterback Matthew Stafford. And guess what, LZ? I don't know if you caught this, <laughs> but the Rams won the Super Bowl. That the Rams were able to build a championship team with strategy of trading the uncertainty of first-round picks for established veterans, signing key free agents, and filling out their roster by drafting unheralded players in later rounds, that has not gone unnoticed by other NFL franchises. This year, a record eight clubs have already traded away their first-round picks, which marks the third time in four years that at least seven franchises won't make a selection in the first round, something that happened only twice in the previous 52 years of the common draft. And this trend, by the way, shows a little sign of abating. Already five teams don't have 2023 first-round <laughs> picks. To be fair, the opening round of last year's NFL draft averaged 12.5 million television viewers, the second most in the history of the event, and more than the NBA Finals or the World Series. Sometimes just saying that aloud depresses me, if I'm being entirely honest. But last year, there were five marquee quarterbacks up for grabs, and the ratings were still down 18% from 2020. And this year, there don't seem to be any franchise-changing prospects that are generating huge buzz. So, Elsie, if teams are starting to devalue the first round of the draft itself, can we say with any sort of confidence that the draft itself may be starting to lose its luster? I've been thinking about this topic a lot since we pulled it together because I think it is nonsensical to suggest that a sports draft <laughs> has lost its place in the sport. <laughs> Like that's, yeah, it's certainly important. No one's saying it's not That's important. how we replenish the players, right? Yeah, like, yeah they, 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 they have to go somewhere. They can't just be dropped from the sky. I agree with that. Exactly. But I think what we're witnessing 
is the evolution and growth and full maturation of the free agency process. And once you start realizing what free agency really can do, and teams are no longer fearful of being bold in trades, you are less reliant upon the draft to build winners. And I think that's what we're seeing. And I hate to keep going back to the Rams because it makes me sound like a homer. I'm already wearing a hat. I've got the poncho. Lord knows I have plenty of memorabilia. But one of the reasons why they have been consistently successful since Sean McVay has arrived is because he and the GM are on the same page in terms of team construction. They both agree that the draft is a method. It's not the only method. And as far as they're concerned, it's not the best method. They earnestly believe the best method is to use those early picks to entice teams with already established players to risk it all on guys who may or may not work out. And they've been really good at that. Look what they've done to the Lions. (laughs) Who's predicting the Detroit Lions to do anything this season? I know. Nobody. And what do they give them? The farm. And here we are 12 months later and no one's expecting any produce. Yeah. But who are among the favorites? The Rams. The team that gave away all of its first round picks and is basically doing nothing but sitting in an empty, glorious house during the first couple of rounds of the draft. So I think what we're witnessing is basically a dismissal of unwritten rules. Hmm. I think that's what we're witnessing. Like one of the unwritten rules of team construction is that once you draft a quarterback first overall, if you don't make it happen with this number one pick, then you somehow set your franchise back 10 years or something like that because it was an unspoken rule that you don't trade or get rid of that person once you've drafted them first overall. Well, the Rams said to hell with that (laughs) (laughs) multiple times. This idea that once you draft a lottery pick, you're obliged to keep them, give them an extension and try to make it work unless they're a total disaster like Jamarcus Russell or something like that. But again, that's a complete rarity, right? So I think that's one of the things that you've seen change. And then the other thing is that from a player perspective, there is no longer like this blind sense of loyalty to a franchise. Aaron Rodgers legitimately was thinking about leaving. Russell Wilson left. (laughs) Back in the day, guys like Russell Wilson, who won a Super Bowl, had to be kicked out. (laughs) Yeah, never going anywhere. Now they're saying, yeah, that was good then, but I'm ready to move on. And he's completely healthy and still is a fantastic player. And there's nothing wrong with him. And the team probably still wanted him. But this is the way business is done today. So I I think that what the Rams have demonstrated, and obviously part of the reason why they got Matthew Stafford is because Matthew requested to be traded. And so I, I think what we're witnessing isn't necessarily just that the draft has lost its luster but also that all the other methods in which an NFL team can put together a roster have been greatly enhanced. And you have guys like Deshaun Watson and guys like Matthew Stafford and so many other players, almost Aaron Rodgers, being willing to say goodbye. Tom Brady, in the old days, would have retired a Patriot. Now we're finding out not only were the Bucks a possibility, he might have came back from Miami. Fuck it. <laughs> Let's just not pay any state taxes for another season. I mean, so, yeah. Lost luster? No. Has increased competition? Yes. 
I would argue a team that maybe has discovered that relying too much on the draft doesn't get you anywhere is, shout out to my son, William Leach, the Cleveland Browns. <laughs> this was their whole thing, right? They compiled draft pick after draft pick. This was the Paul yep. Podesta thing. So sure, they'd be terrible for a couple of years, and boy, were they terrible for a couple of years. But the whole <laughs> why are you using past tense? That's <laughs> right. They were truly terrible for a couple of years, like you've seen in baseball, frankly, like you saw with the Cubs, like you saw with the Astros, like you saw see with the Orioles. Now, that was the idea: is you build up all these draft picks and use it all as ammunition down the line. And what happened? They got a quarterback that didn't work again. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, what they have to do? They had to scramble and go do what the Rams did. <laughs> Focusing so much on just draft picks and just making bets on that is not a strategy. Again, it's not the draft doesn't matter. You're right. Draft obviously matters. It needs to be like a certain backbone to what you're doing. But it used to be like when you were watching the draft, you were watching the future of your franchise. Here's what we're building on. Here's what we're going to do. Maybe this guy fits in in a couple of years and so on. Now everything switches so much for, for crying out loud, the idea that Deshaun freaking Watson would be playing for the Browns next year and <laughs> Baker Mayfield would be unemployed or looking for somewhere place to go just to, before last year's draft would have been absurd. No one would have thought that at all. And so things shift so quickly. And I, I wonder if this is just a general societal thing. What, what's the old line? In the long run, we are all dead. And it does feel like the draft is all built for this long-term, big picture that teams aren't looking at anymore. GMs don't last long enough. Coaches don't last long enough to be able to look five, six years down the line. The Browns did that, and eventually they all had to blow it up anyway. This is the thing that you have to admire, sorry, about the Rams. They're constantly trying to win now. They're not worried about what happened four or five years down the line. They'll deal with that then. You know what? They'll probably be good then too because they'll figure out a way through that. I think that combined with the idea, as we talked about, there's not a lot of great quarterbacks like there were last year. I think that's a reason this draft feels a little bit less electric than maybe drafts we've seen in the past. I would also add, Will, that with this new sort of – landscape in terms of roster construction we also are going to probably lose that element of connectivity to franchises that we've lost in the nba because you have so much player movement now in the nba there's a healthy discussion being had by some lakers fans about feeling somewhat disconnected from the 2020 nba championship Mm. not that they weren't happy to win it but it's just that Basically, everyone from that team is already gone, with the exception of LeBron and AD and THT. And they were gone very quickly, almost as soon as we won the championship. And unceremoniously. Right, exactly. And if you think about my Rams, we still have a lot of our key superstars. Obviously, Cup is still there, Aaron Donald, etc. But we don't know what's going to happen with Odell Beckham Jr. And we definitely already saw... Von Miller take off for the biggest check that was available. And he was really instrumental in helping us get through the postseason in terms of the pressure he would get on the, on the quarterback. So there is already some detachment happening from 2020. We just got Matt Stafford. We didn't <laughs> suffer with him. <laughs> so it's sort of like going, yeah, you're a Ram for life, even though we just met and you were yeah. over there for like 13 years. <laughs> and you guys just got to Los Angeles for granted. <laughs> like, <laughs> let's not forget that either. And I wonder if part of this is too, 
It does feel like the approach to the draft has changed a little. There used to be this idea that not only did you have to nail every pick, you were actually drafting these guys as not just players, but like you needed to be able to look in their souls, right? It led (laughs) to like these kind of embarrassing moments where someone asked Des Bryant if his mother was a prostitute, some of the crazy questions they asked. I would say the NFL itself has become generally more scientific in ways that go beyond just how fast a guy runs down the field. Now, I think it was a recent story about how a lot of teams are taking more mental health into effect on a lot of these guys, Mm -hmm. particularly what's gone through for the last couple of years. It's weird to talk about the NFL being evolutionary or progressive in any sort of way, but it does feel when it comes to the draft, they're not as meat-headed as perhaps as they used to be in that regard. You know what else is really kind of fucked up about that whole period of time? It created this false narrative that the people asking the questions were above reproach or were upstanding citizens. (laughs) Which, (laughs) you know, evidence not supported by the facts. (laughs) Evidence not supported by the facts. (laughs) But because they were in position of hiring and firing, or in this case, drafting or not drafting, and they're asking these questions that are steeped in morality, they gave the impression that they were gatekeepers and that it's not just about the sport, but it's about giving back and being part of the community, you know, and we need to make sure you're good enough to be part of this. Meanwhile, they're beating their wives. They're having addiction issues. They're withholding millions of dollars from each other. Now, hiring black coaches, don't forget that one. (laughs) Don't forget that one. They're doing all this other nefarious stuff while asking questions about the other person's morality and questioning their parenting and their associates. Who are your friends? You know, FBI investigations into who their best friends are. And if they have any gang connection, then no, 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 no. Meanwhile, the owners are hanging out with cartel members and stuff and some crazy shit like that. It's mind-numbing to think that we allow that hypocrisy to happen and take place in this sport for as long as it had been going on. So thank God for social media, because I think that all came falling down once we started tweeting. Talk, Talk about things that are dated. Go back and watch the movie Draft Day. In the context of now, where basically it's Kevin Costner sitting back and being like, hmm, hmm. so who has the metal of the shield? And that's <laughs> who he drafts. And that's basically how the whole thing was set up. I will confess, the draft has never really been my thing at a certain level. I never cover the winter meetings in baseball. I don't like to go to sports events that don't have sports. <laughs> this is Basically, the listing of names off an Excel spreadsheet is basically what this is. But I do think it is- And a fashion show. It's entertainment. It's the NFL at peak NFL, right? It's the most NFL thing to to be like, we're going to not only have a night where we just read names off a list and you totally obsess over it. We're going to have four nights where that happens. I think people are still always be into it. It feels as the teams are not de-emphasizing a draft, but not throwing everything on the draft. Maybe uh, that's a lesson for all of us. All right, well, let's go on to our next topic, this year's highly unpredictable NBA playoffs. Wow, Butler steps in, engulfs it, and a chance at a three-point play. That's Jimmy Butler in a nutshell. There's Jordan Poole, cross-court to Clay, walks into the three, and it's Butler. Clay Thompson detonating, exploding here in the third quarter. Brooks, toss it, Morant, drives, Morant, oh, it's good! One second left. John Morant with the bucket. 22 seconds left. And Morant's first miss. 
And now Smart on the run out. Horford running with him. Marcus Smart will take it. Left hand layup. No. Horford will put back. And a sweep. Boston. Four in a row. That was the sound of the first round of this year's NBA postseason, which has been full of amazing performances, clutch moments, surprising twists and turns, shocking failures, and enough injuries to star players that could change everything. So there are a lot of storylines to keep track of. But, Will, what I'm loving the most is that both conferences look up for grabs. The top two teams in the West, Phoenix and Memphis, they're struggling against the two lowest seeds, New Orleans and Minnesota. And in the East, Boston, Milwaukee, Miami, and maybe Philly are all in a collision course that might be determined by which team is the healthiest. What's also clear is that these playoffs have become a battle between the old and the young. Will veteran superstars like Steph Curry, Chris Paul, Jimmy Butler, James Harden, and Joel Embiid be able to hold off the younger, highly athletic foes from Minnesota, Memphis, New Orleans, and Boston? Last year, we saw 26-year-old Giannis Antetokounmpo dominate the postseason. And this year, we're already speculating that 30-plus legends Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving might be on the downside of their incredible careers after what 24-year-old Jason Tatum just did to them. I mean, he gave them that work. Mm. <laughs> So, Will, the first round is far from over, but already our expectations seem to be constantly changing. So where do we start? To me, this is the fun of the NBA playoffs is it feels like it's been absolute madness so far. It feels like there's been chaos. Everything we thought was true feels like already untrue. And yet, for what it's worth, there's a very real possibility that the higher seed wins every single series in the first round, right? Like right now... Miami's got theirs. Milwaukee seems to have theirs. Boston's already won. We're going to get back to you, Brooklyn, by the way. We'll get back to you before <laughs> this conversation is over. Philly obviously Man. looks a little wobbly. They were up 3-0, and Toronto seems to have them scared. Dallas looks like uh, in a good position against Utah. Golden State seems to have Denver. And then Memphis, Minnesota, obviously that's a really tight series. Memphis is probably still the favorite there. To me, I want to start with Phoenix. Okay. I feel like we spent like a year and a half kind of underappreciating Phoenix and being like, well, they're here because there were injuries with the Lakers, or they're here because Golden State had injuries, or they're here because they stayed healthy all year and had a good system. And once again, it the all playoffs, seems true. Going. Yes, but they made <laughs> the NBA Finals last year. They blew through the regular season this year. If Phoenix had the record and the analytics and the performance that they've had, but they were the Lakers led by LeBron, we'd all be like, oh, well, this is LeBron's to lose. But because it's Phoenix, we've all kind of not taken that seriously. So there's a little part of me that wondered, you know what? They're going to blitz through this thing, man. They're going to lay waste to all the doubters. And here they are. And again, we are taping this on Tuesday afternoon. Phoenix mm -hmm. and New Orleans play Tuesday night. So it will be past my bedtime. That's a 10 o'clock start. I can't hang that late. I got small kids. You'll know when you listen to this, how that game five turned out. But man, that's a New Orleans team that started, what, 1-15, never got mm -hmm. Zion. That series doesn't look like a fluke to me. Booker's injury is a big deal. But this is a team that, again, became within two games to win the NBA Finals last year and dominated the regular season this year. And they've looked as wobbly as anyone. Again, we'll get to you in a second, Brooklyn. To me, that's a little remarkable. And it speaks to what kind of your larger point is, which is, if Phoenix is not the clear favorite, and I think they probably should have been considered that even if we weren't really doing so, heading in, it's hard to consider them the real favorite now. I don't think there is a real favorite. You don't look at any team and be like, oh, they're cruiser right now. Even Boston, I think that series told us more about Brooklyn necessarily than it did about Boston, though not necessarily Tatum. So much of NBA history has been all wrapped up in the idea of like, here's the alpha dog team and someone's got to take them down. It doesn't feel like there is any of that this year. It feels like everything is up for grabs, even each of these individual first-round series. 
It's interesting. I am definitely one of those who believe that Phoenix is only in the finals last season because they faced teams with significant injuries all the way through, starting with the Lakers. And I was at those games in Phoenix last season with the Lakers. And Anthony Davis did not play great in game one. and They lost. He played pretty good in games two and three, and they won both. And then he got hurt. And then the Phoenix Suns were able to finish that series off in six, obviously, and go all the way through facing a hurt Denver team. I hate to poo-poo someone's run to the finals. Right. But the reasons why no one takes them seriously, Will, is because we know how you got there. And even though they had the best regular season of any team, we still didn't take them seriously because no one really pays attention to the regular season anymore. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) The regular season just doesn't mean what it used to mean because the players, particularly the, the superstars, don't take it the same way the way they used to. You know, it's about being as healthy as possible for the postseason. So even though Phoenix had a fantastic regular season, no one really gives a fuck. And even though Phoenix went to the finals last season, no one really respects it. And now Phoenix gets a chance to justify itself. Devin Booker is hurt, and people are reminded that Chris Paul is old. And there's one other factor, too, that's really, really important to mention in all of this. The reason why Giannis destroyed them and the reason why Anthony Davis had them up to one before he was hurt is because Phoenix is vulnerable against big men, especially big men who can shoot a little bit. That's the other reason why they're in a tough series with the New Orleans Pelicans. And if Zion was playing another big man, they might have gotten swept by now. <laughs> but fortunately, that's never going to happen. I will believe I see Zion Williamson in a game when I, when I see it. Him I'm, and I'm Ben just, Simmons, I'm, I won't believe either one of them ever again. When you look out on that squad, there is a consistency there in terms of the best way to attack them. And that's with size. They lean heavily with small ball, and they have amazing perimeter defenders, and they have guys with a lot of heart. None of that shit matters if the dude is just bigger and stronger than you. The reason why Giannis and the Bucks were down early in the series is because Giannis forgot he was bigger than everybody else. And when he remembered it, he just destroyed them. So I don't know who's going to win this series, especially with Booker likely being out for the duration and Chris Paul not being able to stream together multiple great shooting nights. I don't know if DeAndre Ayton is on that tier to be able to just elevate the team, you know, alone as a big man. He obviously couldn't do it against Giannis, but then again, Giannis is special. DeAndre Ayton is really good, but Giannis is special. I don't think the Pelicans has a special big man, but Valanciunas is definitely talented and has given them a lot of work. And if you think about some of the other series, there is definitely an opportunity there, I think, still for Memphis. I think there's definitely an opportunity still there for the Golden State Warriors, only because they've done it before. But I think the champion is in the East. So it's funny. We talk about no one really caring about the regular season and just trying to get your guys healthy. That strategy has not worked because there are so many injuries. Like, obviously, Booker being out. You've got Middleton being out. Jaw himself has said he's not entirely right. I think he said, I'm not Jaw right now. Right. For what it's worth, may I someday reach a point in my life where, where I can like comfortably say, oh, I'm not really Will right now. And everybody knows what I'm talking about. Just like globally. And <laughs> I, already sounds know. I already know when you say you're <laughs> you not do, Will. But you talk to me every week. No, I'm talking about the rest of the global community. He's not really healthy. Embiid now has this thumb issue. There's clearly 
tons of injury problems. I think this is kind of an interesting turn the NBA has taken the last couple of years. We saw this with Phoenix last year, and I think you're going to see it again this year. It's really not going to be about necessarily who's best. It's about who's left standing. And I think that's okay. I think that's kind of a little bit more interesting than, no offense to the Lakers, but being like, okay, here's their three in a row, or here's the Bulls three in a row. I think there's value in that. There's a variety in it. But that's always been the case, though, Will. You know, you brought up the Bulls, right? Every Lakers fan know that we lost against that Chicago Bulls team, in part because our leading scorer was out for the series. People never talk about that part. All they do is show the highlight of Jordan doing the fake dunk thingy and then flipping it with his left. But they never talk about the fact that the one game the Lakers won was the one game they had their leading scorer, James Worthy. And then James goes out and they don't win another game. There's not a lot of teams in any league that can win a championship without their leading scorer or top dog. (laughs) And no one talks about that part. We all say, this is the coronation of Michael Jordan. And it was. And they might have still won, might have, but I brought it up only because all championships in some way or form or fashion has been massaged by the ability to stay healthy. Certainly we can make the same argument for the Golden State Warriors if LeBron James shows up with a healthy Kevin Love and Kyrie Irving for the entire series as opposed to trying to make Timothy Moskov the second coming of Elijah Wan. So I, I think that the health thing has always sort of defined the NBA in a lot of ways. It's just through history, we tend not to remember, we totally you know, the did. injuries <laughs> because yeah. we're so caught up in the apex of it all and the championships. But this is just more of the same that's always defined the postseason, particularly in the NBA. Okay, let's talk about the Nets. Tom Ziller uh, writes a really good Substack NBA newsletter. He put a lot of this on Kyrie and not just the vaccine stuff, but the idea that basically... Here's been Kyrie's career. He was a good player, mm-hmm. and then he played with LeBron and won the championship, then yep. left, and then was a good player that never won playoff series just like he did before. <laughs> he didn't before LeBron got there. And right. yet he has absolute power over that franchise, along with Durant, of course. You look at the Nets. What the hell was this all about? This is year three. Of the great experiment, right? And yes, there was a pandemic in the middle of it. The Nets, unlike everyone else on the planet, were affected by that. They've won one playoff series in those three years against a team that they just got swept by. They're in their 30s now. This whole Nets thing, we saw what, those like five or six games or 10, 11 games where they had Harden, Kyrie, and KD at the same time, and they looked terrific. I still feel like the vaccine thing is the primary reason it didn't work this year. I think if Kyrie would have just gotten vaccinated, Harden's still on that team. I mean, Joe Harris getting hurt didn't help. There were other issues involved. But you had those three guys together at peak capacity. They were going to figure something out. Now you look at that Nets team who, again, getting swept in the first round. Katie and Kyrie were healthy. It's not like one of them were hurt. And then afterwards to have Kyrie be like, well, you know, you see a team like Boston, they were just together all year and we never really had that kind of opportunity. Hmm. I wonder why that was. So it's really funny to see. As I get older, I try to get less schadenfreude about sports, but it is hard not to when it comes to this net statement. Man, I, I, I hear people tripping all the time. And all I can say is winning is hard. I guess we can blame the Golden State Warriors for this, maybe in some ways, because the Warriors, especially at their peak, made it look easy, especially once they got KD. It was like, oh, well, this is the done deal. The winning is easy. But winning was never easy. Winning was hard when they had KD. 
when he was hard for the Celtics of Boston with Larry Bird and, and his big three, and it was hard for the Lakers, and it was hard for Dr. J and the 76ers. Winning's hard, people. And it's not simply about throwing together the best talent. You need other things to go well in order to win a championship, starting with staying healthy. But it doesn't end there. It's about getting great performances from unexpected sources. It's about having a coach who's able to adapt to different challenges throughout the course of the season and the postseason. It's about a lucky bounce. If you're the Toronto Raptors and Kawhi takes an ill-advised fall-away three-point jump shot that hits every part of the rim before it goes through. He didn't plan that shit. That shit was luck. (laughs) I understand all this. Winning is hard. Winning winning one game in the first round when you have Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant. Kobe were swept, man. It's not about (laughs) when it happens. It's about who it happens against. And so it was a matchup that was a problem for them regardless of when they were going to face them. Now, all that to say that this upcoming offseason, when there's player movement again, let's just pump the brakes on this idea that, oh, they have a super team. So thus, (laughs) dot, 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 dot. Because that Toronto Raptor team that I talked about with Kawhi, that wasn't a super team. It was just a really, really good team that played well together, that had a great coach that knew how to make adjustments when necessary. And they got a little lucky in terms of facing a uh, Golden State Warriors team that wasn't healthy. You need a lot of stuff to go right in order to make deep runs into the postseason. That's the big reason why I defend LeBron James's 10 final appearances as hard as I possibly can. Because people are thinking... Somehow, some way, he should be embarrassed that he went to 10 finals and came out with four chips. I totally hear you. As if getting to 10 finals is easy. You know know how you get to 10 finals? (laughs) Not getting swept in the first round. That's how you get to 10 finals. Just to wrap up, Kyrie in particular got so much love from playing with LeBron that people totally forgot that Kyrie didn't do shit before LeBron got there. <laughs> really hasn't done that much since he didn't play with LeBron. And hasn't other, done that much other since. Other than fan bases and not get, and not get back to him. Yes. Kyrie never showed you before LeBron James that he was the dude that was going to lead you to a championship. And yet we ignored all of that and just assumed that if he was on a team with KD, that it was just going to work out. That's not the way sports works. And they've just been reminded that it takes a little bit more than talent to win. And and also, it apparently takes more than Steve Nash, because I couldn't help but notice that Kyrie, when he talked about the future of this franchise, talked about KD and the owner and the GM, did not seem to mention the coach. Hmm. Well, you know hmm. what? Interesting. If you recall, when Kyrie was first asked about the super team, hmm. if you will, when Steve Nash was hired, he said they didn't really need a coach anyway. Remember yeah, well, that? That, <laughs> that was before they started playing. Yeah. All right. Shall we move on to our next topic? Uh, I want to yell about them getting swept in the first round somewhere. <laughs> All right. When we return, we're going to discuss the decision by Wimbledon to ban Russian and Belarusian players this year. LZ, I hope our friendship survives. How wrong you are on this one.
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Okay, LZ, we're back. Tennis star Novak Djokovic coming out against Wimbledon's ban on Russian and Belarusian Russian players in this year's tournament. Wimbledon officials announcing they will not be able to compete due to the invasion of Ukraine. Djokovic calling the decision crazy, saying that the athletes had nothing to do with the ongoing conflict, adding, quote, I will always condemn war. I will never support war, being myself a child of war. That was a Fox News report about the reaction of men's number one tennis player Novak Djokovic to the headline that Wimbledon, which begins on June 27th, will be banning all Russian and Belarusian players from this year's tournament because of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Wimbledon instituted the ban, by the way, despite the fact that a number of prominent Russian players, including U.S. Open title holder Daniil Medvedev, men's number eight Andrei Rublev, and women's number 15 Anastasia Pavlachenkova, have all recently stated that they're anti-war, although they've likely been afraid to speak out directly against Russian President Vladimir Putin to protect their families at home. LZ, when we were deciding on discussing this this week, we realized, to be honest, to my surprise, that we each came down on different sides of this issue. The people on the pro-ban side, which you agree with, feel that the exclusion of Russian and Belarusian players from Wimbledon will put pressure on Vladimir Putin. I want to play a comment from former Ukrainian tennis pro Sergei Sakovsky, who has joined the army to defend his home country, representing this specific point of view. I do believe that the Russian citizens has to have a common uh, collective guilt uh, and they have to carry this onwards. And sport is something that Putin is taking big pride of. Uh, he was always placing the sports uh, people up front of his campaigns. And uh, not for them, not being able to participate is one thing. On the anti-ban side, which I am a proponent of, we have Djokovic. Oh, great. I'm glad he's on my side. As our nice. most famous spokesman. <laughs> I did, Never mind. I changed my mind. Besides calling Wimbledon's decision crazy, he said that, quote, when politics interfere with sport, the result is not good. For the record, I do not agree with that statement, and that is not why I am against the ban. LZ, this podcast is all about politics interfering with sports. So who is more qualified to debate this than you and I? So you go first. Why do you think the Wimbledon ban is a fair decision? Because there's been a precedent for banning countries, just like there's a precedence for countries boycotting sporting events. Why are we acting as if this is brand new and unprecedented? Are, are we just going to ignore that China was banned forever and a day for political reasons? Are we going to forget that South Africa was banned for international play for forever and a day? Are we going to forget 
what happened in 76 and 80 and 84 in terms of boycotts and positioning based upon Russia's invasion of Afghanistan. Like, there are so many examples of international play being impacted by geopolitical influences that the idea that somehow Wimbledon has now crossed the line is ridiculous to me. And it's also ridiculous to me to have Novak Djokovic be the voice for <laughs> that opposition. Certainly agree with you there. Certainly agree with you there. If Novak Djokovic agrees with your geopolitical decision, then perhaps you need to reevaluate okay. why you've made said decision. Because okay. believe okay. you me, when he makes a statement like politics should not be interfering with sports, he ain't talking about no damn Ukraine war. I know. He's talking about Australia. I know he is. <laughs> and how he it. didn't get a chance to defend his title. He is not talking about the other players impacted by this decision. He's not wanting to make sure Medvedev gets another crack at him. No, he's talking about Australia. He's talking about how Wimbledon tried to stop him from playing because of the vaccination or his lack of a vaccination. He's talking about himself. I'm talking about the history of sports on this planet when it comes to international play. And I'm just here to point out that for centuries... Decisions like the one Wimbledon had with Russia has been going on. So let's just pump the brakes on how crazy this is and instead really look at who's talking and why. Okay. Just to be clear, Novak is full of shit. He's totally full of shit on this. And that is not the position I'm defending. However, most of the bands you're talking about are national teams. I do not have a problem, for example, with FIFA not having Russia be in the World Cup. I do not have a problem with the IOC not having them in the international competition. Those are national teams. We are talking about individuals who in many ways have been basically independent contractors. A lot of people live in Florida, for Christ's sake. Like the idea that these Russian players, by virtue of being Russian, are somehow connected to Putin's regime is absurd. You saw Rublev. He was the one that wrote No War, Please. He's the one with the Ukrainian doubles partner, for crying out loud. The UK sports minister, Nigel Huddleston, saying, quote, we need some potential insurance that they are not supporters of Putin, and we are considering what requirements we may need to try and get some assurances along those lines. That's a scary statement, man. <laughs> the idea that a sports minister would say, hey, to play in our tournament, we basically need you to be very explicit about what side of this political issue you are on. Now, I would hope that they would say, Putin sucks, but very easy for me to say, I don't have family that could be affected by Putin. Who is the Rangers hockey player who originally was very much against Putin and made a strong statement about it and has scrubbed everything and it's totally like gotten shut up about it now? The idea that you put these players in a situation where you have to say, oh, well, you need to make it clear that you're not pro-Putin when they are, of course, in this impossible situation where if they say anything, they can be putting themselves in danger, they can be putting their families in danger. The idea that somehow it's very easy for Nigel Huddleston to sit there and say, well, we need to see assurances from them. And what I would argue is there was a great piece in the Times of London specifically about this that talked about actually one of the main reasons that the UK sports minister and the British government wanted to do this because they were very worried. And this is an actual quote for the piece. They were very worried that Kate Middleton standing up with a Russian winner of Wimbledon would be used as Putin propaganda. 
I think another thing they said was they were afraid of what it would look like if a Russian player put up a Russian flag after they won, which, by the way, would totally not happen. And if it did, the stadium would boo the shit out of them. This feels less about taking a stand against Putin's aggression in Ukraine, which we should all do because fuck that guy. No one's not saying that. I would argue there's a certain security theater. It is, if anything, actually Wimbledon trying to push politics away and trying to make it look like, no, 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 don't think about that. That's not happening over here. Here, we don't have to worry about little Kate. We don't have to worry about Kate standing with a Russian player. How about this idea? Let's mark back at our Wayback Machine to 2005. You know who everybody hated in 2005? The United States of America. People were so mad at us. One of my favorite movies of all time, Before Sunset, literally has a whole section of them being like, yep, we all hate Americans now. You suck. Get out of Europe. We hate everything about you. You know what else happened in 2005? Tiger Woods won the British Open. Venus Williams won Wimbledon. Andy Rodgers finished second. Lance Armstrong, who everybody loves and still does, right, won the Tour de France. <laughs> and there was no time at all. I was running Deadspin. I looked at every sports story in the world back then. There was no notion, serious idea that like, oh, wow, should we not let Americans in this tournament? Though, you know what? We were doing a lot of war crimes at the time. Now, I am not saying that Putin and Bush are the same person. I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is that kind of line where you hold individual athletes responsible for the actions of their government feels like a really, really scary place to be. Well, I will simply remind you that when you ask historians today, which I have because I'm a nerd. <laughs> You're a journalist. Same thing. About whether or not the United States should have participated in the Nazi Olympics. We all today go, yeah, maybe not shouldn't great. have done that. Yep. Agreed. Shouldn't have done that. Agreed. But they did the Novak Djokovic slash Will Leach approach, which is <laughs> we're not going <laughs> to. Cool. There's a slippery slope. If we don't go to the Olympics because of politics, then blah, blah, That's blah, 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 blah. Obviously not what I said. And so <laughs> what do we have? We have images of Americans competing with Adolf Hitler in the background, with Nazi flags all around, mm -hmm. and the United States of America, the defender of freedom, trying to pretend they don't see all of that shit because we're here for the sports. I don't have to revisit what happened after 1936. We all know the history. I just need to remind you that it wasn't a good look for the free world. And that while we in the United States have a tendency to forget and rewrite our history for a variety of reasons, mm -hmm. shouts out to you, every single Republican <laughs> governor, presidential candidate in the future, and some members of Congress who are into banning books, mm. who are trying to equate talking about black history with CRT, who are saying, don't say gay. Yeah, all mm. you motherfuckers. Yeah, I'm talking to you when I say this. Them, not we, me. I, those not guys you, suck. Though. I agree with you. No. But trying to <laughs> ignore our history is what we like to do in this country. But actually, in Europe, where much mm -hmm. of the war took place, uh -huh. they actually remember the lessons and learn from them. And one of the things they learned is that if a nation like Russia is attacking nuclear plants and bombing people as they try to evacuate and trying to overthrow a sovereign country that maybe just maybe we shouldn't be in the same sandpit pretending as if sports supersedes all of this. Totally agree. Maybe just maybe that's the reason why Wimbledon, the location of the great Winston Churchill and all the great 
orators of that particular time period I'm talking about, maybe they actually remember that shit and said, I would much rather have Novak Djokovic call us crazy than the eyes of history looking back and going, what the fuck? Did you do that again? Yeah, I'm sorry, but there's like a huge difference between sending your national team to go play in Hitler's Great Olympics and allowing Russian individual athletes who are not who associated. Who do you think made up a team? Human beings. A team isn't made up of individual <laughs> athletes. <laughs> Those guys are under the Russian ban or whatever yeah. they call them in the IOC anymore. Oh, the Russian. Yeah, Maria Sharapova. You're right. She lived in Florida. But guess what? When she won that shit, who was she thanking? Which flag was she draped with in the Olympics? What songs were playing? They were all Russia. All of it. So I get it, Will. Yes. She was in the Olympics. They're, they're, that was they're, the Olympics. Individual this is athletes. But individual <laughs> athletes, they make up a national team. They don't now. They're playing it for themselves. That's the no, whole point. No, they're not. That's my point. They're not out there saying, this is for me. How are they not that Tiger Woods was doing this for? Did anyone think no, 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 Tiger not, Woods? No, no, no. I'm not talking about Tiger Woods. I'm talking about the athletes who are being banned specifically. So specifically the Russians. So there is a yes. difference. You do, do you, see a I specific mean, think, difference. Think about what happened in the Olympics. Once they were busted for using performance enhancing drugs, the punishment was you cannot have a Russian flag. Agreed. You cannot represent Russia. You can represent yourself. And but what none happened? of these athletes were on those teams. And you know what happened? They played the Russian national anthem. They thanked Russia. Yeah. Putin bragged. And no <laughs> one gave a fuck about the hand. The, the you, you know, Russia's not here. Just the individual athletes. Come on, man. Come on, Will. Uh, I know the, that people think it's a slippery slope. I get it. It can be viewed as a slippery slope. Fine, whatever. I would much rather err on the side of caution than to have Wimbledon celebrate athletes in the midst of this war that, oh, by the way, is not de-escalating. We may have gotten bored by it because Will Smith slapped the shit out of Chris Rock, but I the war is still going on. <laughs> like, I don't, the arguments keep going to this weird place that, like, I'm, again, not on Djokovic's side, to be as clear as possible. But, like, no, but that, you that's are. not the you guys, not. you guys agree that Wimbledon's decision is crazy. That's on I his think side and it's one issue. Yeah, but I don't think it's because it's ejecting politics into it. I think it's allowing the individual autonomy of individual human beings to stand for something other than their country when they're not in an actual Olympic event. If this is an Olympic event, I'm with you. None of the players that we're talking about were banned from the Olympics for using steroids. They just are Russian. <laughs> like they're just Russians in the same way that I am an American and also I'm not Lance Armstrong. And asking them to do some sort of loyalty pledge and say, don't, no, 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 don't yeah, worry. That's, we're against that's, Putin. that's stupid. I don't, yeah, need, that's I, don't, I don't want a loyalty pledge. I think that's but, performative, and I agree with you. I think it's totally, totally dumb. But so do, but can, can Medvedev not play until what? Until this is over? This is how you apply pressure on leaders. This is the reason why nations boycott to begin with. It's to apply pressure. It's to make a statement by first making a sacrifice yourself. Did it occur to you that it hurts Wimbledon to do this too? That it isn't just about hurting the Russian athletes? but it believes so strongly in this stance that it's willing to take the sacrifice to not have two top 10 players competing in the competition because they're Russian, one so, of which was briefly number one player in the world and is the current U.S. Open champion. You don't think it hurts them too not to have him on the court? 
Of course it does. But these are sacrifices that have to be made when shit gets rough. And shit's rough right now. There's a war. (laughs) I'm fully aware, man. I just don't know what Medvedev has to do with it. In the same way that I don't know what Tiger Woods had to do with our horrible Iraqi war. Um, Tiger Woods may be a bad example. <laughs> he's a he's very bad good. example. Um, Venus Williamson. Venus Williams. Right. Venus Williams. Well, that's still Venus a bad example because she wasn't impacted. How about Isaiah Thomas, one of my personal favorites, who had nothing to do with Russia's invasion of Afghanistan, who had nothing to do with the decision to boycott the Olympics, but nonetheless, resume missing the Olympic gold medal in part because of Scottie Pippen and Michael Jordan, but also yeah. because of the fact that they boycotted in 1980. And every That's- athlete in 1980 was impacted by that in the United States, not because of anything that they did, but because of the decision of their leader. But they That's were the cost for the of being a citizen team. of a country. <laughs> you don't get to be a free human being when your leader does something wrong. But when your leader does something right, you get to probably be Russian or American or any other representation. No, this is what it means to be part of a citizenship. That good or bad, this is who you are and what happens to that country, good or bad, impacts you, whether you are directly involved with that or not. Everybody who is an American did not vote for George W. Bush, but everybody who's an American had to deal with the implications of his decisions. And that's what I'm suggesting when it comes to the athletes. (laughs) Yeah, it sucks. It does. It sucks. But you know what? You aren't the first country that's had to deal with this. You won't be the last country that has to deal with it. I applaud Wimbledon for making this decision because I would much rather upset a handful of people on the back end than have a future with me sitting up there celebrating with Russia after Russia's invaded Poland or if Russia invades (laughs) another nation or if Russia decides to use chemical weaponry and we're at Wimbledon acting like everything's okay, eating strawberries and cream and shit. No, no now they will act like everything's okay because they don't have to deal with any Russian athletes there. Now they can pretend it's not happening at all. Now no, they, they that, can't that's the whole because point. it's happening in their backyard. It's no, happening they're, they're there. Not, in, not, with, not within women because there's no Russians there. They don't have to deal what with it now. What are you talking about? Everyone knows the gas prices have been impacted since the war started. Not, Everyone I, knows that right I'm now not saying there's, a, there's a humanitarian know. crisis all over the continent. We have the luxury of having the great ocean between us, and so we don't have the day-to-day stressors of it. But the people who live in Western Europe – They don't get to forget there's a war going on. They do when they're in Wimbledon because they just put the Russians out. They can all pretend that everything's fine. That's the whole point. That's a difficult conversation to have to be like, oh my gosh, what do we do if a Russian player does well with this? But now you don't have to because you've just gotten rid of them all. And Kate Middleton doesn't have to worry about shaking anybody's hand. I agree. You don't have to deal with the visual aspect of seeing perhaps Medvedev win the championship and having to negotiate that. That I agree with. What I don't agree with is because Medvedev isn't there, that now the war is out of sight, out of mind. No, they just avoid a PR mess, but they still are dealing with the economic impact and fallout and the humanitarian crisis of of the war in a way that we in the United States don't even come close to recognizing outside of gas prices and using it for political ammo because we have a midterm election coming up. But they have millions of people fleeing the country trying to find refuge. They are sending more than just hundreds of millions of dollars like we are. They're sending actual people over to make sure that NATO countries have enough armed forces in the event that Putin decides to go a little bit more crazy. 
So they have a different relationship with the war than we do. And that's the reason why I'm with their decision. If you know the carnage that's happening in a real way, then you need to to do everything you can to discourage it from continuing. And attacking sports is really important because, as I mentioned before, 76, 80, and 84, all those Olympics were impacted by politics because we know that sports is part of culture and countries that's really, really important. And we want to hit them where it hurts. And sports is where it hurt. So I'm sorry, Medvedev. I'm sorry, Rublev. I'm sorry, Anastasia. I won't say your last name because there's too many <laughs> syllables and I don't want to yeah, butcher yeah. it. This is complicated and it's not fair and you did nothing wrong. But guess what? It doesn't matter because Isaiah Thomas doesn't have his Olympic gold medal for the exact same reasons. And South mm, Africa couldn't compete nothing. in the Olympics for the exact same reasons. And China couldn't compete for the exact same reasons. And I'm pretty sure there'll be other nations in the future that won't compete for the very same reasons. Oh, I'm sure there will be now. I have no doubt about that. (laughs) LZ, you are someone that I respect so much that when you disagree with me about something, I find myself going, hmm, am I wrong about this? Wow. (laughs) This is not one of those times, I have to tell you. This is not one of those times. We're going to put up a poll. All right, now that I've proven Will wrong, it's time for This Week in Sports History, where we break down an event from the past through the lens of 2022. was Major League Baseball's most famous organist, the now-retired Nancy Faust, offering na-na-hey-hey, kiss him goodbye. The tune she played when opposing pitchers were pulled from games. Faust, who spent 41 years entertaining Chicago White Sox fans, became famous for integrating pop songs into the flow of the game's action, a much-imitated approach that remains the standard at many ballparks that still use live organ music today. 81 years ago this week, the Chicago Cubs became the first team to employ an organ player when Ray Nelson played the pipe organ in front of 18,000 fans. The practice quickly caught on and became standard, but it reached an entire new level of popularity when Faust was hired by the White Sox in 1970. Faust's most famous contributions include inspiring legendary announcer Harry Carey to sing Take Me Out to the Ball Game in the seventh inning stretch which became a major attraction in the Winnie City for decades. As you can tell, I've participated in doing so many times. Mm-hmm. And playing the songs, Just the Two of Us, when a blow-up doll was tossed around the outfield. And is that all there is when a streaker once made an appearance? <laughs> That's just savage, by the way. Yeah, I always <laughs> wondered like women would always sing that song to me. Uh, now I understand. <laughs> Well, baseball is well over 100 years old, so its ability to reinvent old traditions like this and keep them current is a major key to its survival. So, joining us to talk about all the thinking, planning, and creativity that goes into all of it is Josh Cantor, the hugely popular organist for the Boston Red Sox. Josh, thank you so much for coming on with us. You get to go to work at Fenway Park, watch games, and play music. That sounds like the best gig in the world, no? Yeah, thanks, Will and LZ, for having me. I just started my 20th season doing this, and people often ask me, is this a dream job? 
And the answer is, if you like playing the organ and watching baseball at Fenway Park, then yes, it is a dream job. Some people <laughs> don't enjoy those things, but if you, if you do like me, then there's no better job to have probably. When I close my eyes and think of baseball, I think of the organ. In many ways, that's the soundtrack to it. I grew up listening to Ernie Hayes in St. Louis. Of course, obviously, Nancy's one of the greatest ever. And it feels something specific to the game. I'm curious as someone that's been doing this for so long and seeing how crowds react, what is it do you think about specifically this instrument and the game I'm sure there are organs at NFL games, but it feels incongruent, one might say. What is it about baseball and that connection that that makes this so powerful? Yeah, so I actually met a musicologist who uh, teaches at the University of Arkansas. He was telling me that there were organ-type instruments being played at sporting events like literally 3,000 years ago. So (laughs) it's not a totally new thing, but I will say it's still closely associated with hockey. And then it was for a time closely associated with basketball, but it was never closely associated with football. Baseball, of course, the organ was this instrument that was like, oh, you can hire an organist instead of hiring a full pet band. So that was seen as sort of an economical choice because the organ was known for kind of having this grand big sweeping sound. The main purpose for building organs was to put them in churches and make them as glorious as possible in order to sort <laughs> of like pay the greatest glory to on high as you possibly could. Mm-hmm. Um, and the instrument was supposed to symbolize that. It was a good fit for enormous gatherings. And then beyond that, it came to have a certain kind of connection with baseball, more so than other sports. I think it's something to do with the pastoral nature of the game compared to other sports and the pastoral nature of the sound of an organ playing. I don't know. I mean, if you go to Japan and ask baseball fans, lifelong baseball fans there, they don't have that association. So it's not like it's universal, but it is in the U.S. There's a a strong connection. So I'm really curious as to what's the ratio between songs that are popular today versus the staples? Like how much Billie Eilish are you playing versus Frédéric Chopin or some stuff like that? When I started, I didn't really have a feedback mechanism. So I was trying to play what I thought people wanted to hear. And it was based on kind of my own tastes. I've always sort of been a popular music fan of different eras and genres. So I tried to just mix it up as much as possible, try to have something for everyone because it is Fenway is an all ages crowd and it's a baseball first crowd. You know, it's not a music first crowd. So you keep it mostly to sort of like stuff that's well known, stuff that maybe has some cross generational appeal. I've had a lot of success with R&B songs that were a hit 30 years ago and then sampled in like a new hip hop track. And then when I play them, it's like the kids <laughs> like it and their parents or even their grandparents <laughs> like it. So basically you've been playing, this is how we do it over and over again. <laughs> I definitely have played that one. <laughs> Without doubt. Yeah, especially on a Friday night, right? This is how we do it. Friday night. But what I started doing about 10 years ago was taking song requests via Twitter from fans and stands and just did it as kind of a word of mouth thing so that I could do it, ease into it gradually and try it as an experiment. And I would get like one or two a night and I realized that I could kind of, you know, learn them pretty quickly. And now it's sort of grown and that's been really fun. And that's what drives it. And that's what instructs me on what people want to hear, don't want to hear. It's not like I get hundreds of requests a night, but I probably get 15 to 20 every night from people in the know, it's like a little Easter egg at Fenway. Mm-hmm. And people will say, I'm at the game and I want to hear this song. 
if Drake drops a new single, somebody's going to let me know. And then <laughs> they'll be like, you know, here's the new Drake single that came out this morning, and then I'll play it that night at the gate. Drake doesn't call you firsthand and ask and tell you at all? Not anymore. He uh, <laughs> we had, a little, had a little beef. Yeah, I think you got to be the Blue Jays organist, I think, to yeah, be able to, uh, to, yeah. to, to do that. I'm assuming you were not at the ballpark for 2020, or were you? Or what's the experience been like to kind of ease back in and what's been like to be back now full time? I think it might be a safe assumption to think that I wasn't working those games, but in fact, I was. <laughs> wow. Um, we wow. had 30, 31 home games. The stadium was empty, and that never stopped being strange. <laughs> it was explained to me is like, you know, ostensibly they just wanted to have that sound on the broadcast. The whole idea was like people are craving some sense of familiarity and hearing the organ on the baseball game broadcast can help contribute to that. I was grateful to have somewhere to go. I was certainly grateful to have a gig because most of my musician friends did not. I wouldn't say it was fun because so much of what I depend on is that interaction Mm. with the crowd. And there was none of that. And then on top of that, the Red Sox got off to a 6 and 18 start in a two-month season, so there really wasn't yeah. anything to play for. When it was 10% crowd, I love the fact that, like, you could hear that one crazy guy in the upper deck screaming <laughs> at the pitcher, you know? That was really cool, and you don't normally get that at Fenway. Yeah. So I will always remember that. But then easing back into the full crowds, I certainly appreciated the energy, and I appreciated being able to take requests. This year has been a continuation of that. So far, we've had one homestand, it was a new Kong, and the team did so-so overall, but it was really fun. It felt like springtime. It felt like the sun is shining. We can gather together again, mm. like a reasonable amount of safety. So that's been great. One last question. It does feel like a lot of stadiums, not just in baseball, but really are moving more toward that DJ sort of setup. Is there a sense among organists? Is there a community? Is there a sense of banding together? You young, you young. Yes. I'm not going to get you in trouble. I'm not. Do no. not comment on any union on, activity. It's fine. No. I know. I, trust me. I know how to answer these kinds of <laughs> We have an online community where we share news about what's happening with our respective organizations and, and talk shop and, and swap notes and talk about things that we do that are working and things that aren't working. You know, everybody's assignment is a little different, but it's fascinating to, to learn from each other and see all the different kinds of musical backgrounds that people come from to get this job because it's not really a job that we train for. You know, there's no traditional <laughs> career paths to get you to this point. <laughs> Is anybody throwing shade? Like, girl, can you believe she's still playing Janet Jackson? Are you guys doing that? No. It's a really supportive group. Everyone's assignment is different. So like Sue Nelson, who's been with the twins forever, basically her task is to just, you know, kind of play those short little riffs that you're used to hearing. The things that make people say charge and, and let's go and that kind of stuff. And she's not interested in doing anything beyond that. And the team's not interested in having her doing anything beyond that. And then there's other people like Matt Kaminsky with the Braves. He does these things. So you know how like players have their entrance song, their walk-up song, mm. right? So mm-hmm. and the home team players get to pick the song in one year, 99.9% of the time. It's a DJ track. So he does those for the visiting team, but in a way that kind of like, you know, pokes fun or like a song mm-hmm. title that's a little wordplay on their name or something. You know, it's just sort of goofy stuff like that. My thing is taking any and all requests and, and putting them out there for people. So uh, everyone's got a slightly different approach so it's great to learn from each other we're in a dj era right now and these things come and go but we are in a dj era just in popular culture in sports and and beyond sports as well and so 
that's a big part of what you're seeing a lot of these games. I have always worked very closely with the DJs that we've had at Fenway Park over the years, and I've always enjoyed that. I love kind of having a partner in crime and someone that I can work with and bounce ideas off of and someone who is just as passionate about music and just as prone to overthinking song choices as I am. Mm-hmm. And in that way, because it is an old traditional park, and at the same time, you know, we are trying to be modern in a lot of ways, especially in terms of music presentation, especially in terms of attracting a younger, more diverse audience. We, we have that balance. We have both. Well, I encourage everyone Follow Josh on Twitter, JT Cantor, J-T-K-A-N-T-O-R. And if you are at a Red Sox game, the Cardinals play at Fenway Park this year. Yes, they do. And I believe I'm going to go. Well, so please come say hello. I, I will. And I will definitely be requesting Wilco songs oh, great. Uh, from you. So you'll know that that was me when that yes. happened. Thank you for your time and uh, best of luck with everything and keep playing. We love it. Thank you for, for keeping Thank it Thank you guys up. so much. Appreciate Appreciate Could you do me one favor though, Josh? Yes, of course. Could you sing the chorus with me? Yeah. This is how we do it. Yeah, ready? One, two, One. three, four. This, this is how we do it. This is how we do it. I'm not I'm not taking part in that. <laughs> And that's our show for this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening to The Long Game with LZ and Leach. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. The Long Game is produced by Pierre Bienname, Megan Burney, Mark Levine, and Marshall Eisen. Music is by Gloria Tells, with some sound design by David Wilson. We'll be back with another podcast next Wednesday after the Wimbledon people listen to our debate on this podcast and change their minds. <laughs>